0: morning church. Morning, morning. I wish you all a blessed and joy-filled and happy new year. If you will take your Bibles this morning, turn with me to Ezra chapter 10. Continuing our study of Ezra, we've been in for some weeks now. We find ourselves at the beginning of chapter 10, looking at the first 8 verses this morning. I'll read those now, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, of the sons of Elam, addressed Ezra. We have broken faith with our God and have married foreign women from the peoples of the land. But even now, there is hope for Israel in spite of this. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these wives and their children, according to the counsel of my Lord, and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for it is your task, and we are with you. Be strong and do it. Then Ezra arose and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would do as had been said. So they took the oath. Then Ezra withdrew from before the house of God... ...and went to the chamber of Jehanan, the son of Eliashib... ...where he spent the night, neither eating bread nor drinking water... ...for he was mourning over the faithlessness of the exiles. And a proclamation was made throughout Judah and Jerusalem... ...to all the returned exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem... ...and that if anyone did not come within three days... By order of the officials and the elders, all his property should be forfeit, and he himself banned from the congregation of the exiles. And thus far is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Father, it may be a new year this morning, but we come before you this morning as every morning because this is another day in which we need nourishment for our souls. And you feed us through your word. So, by your spirit, now I ask that you would make this time effectual, that the communication would be clear, and that the eating and nourishing of the souls of your people would be powerful for salvation, and also for sanctification, leading to their glorification. It is in the name of Jesus, our Savior, that we ask these things. Amen. Well, beloved, as a means for setting the course for 2023, I want to take this morning's sermon and address, as it were, the state of the church. God is the greatest storyteller... And we are subjects in His greatest story ever told. It's good to occasionally stop and think about where we are, specifically here at Christ the King in Anderson County, as regards the overall larger story of redemption and in the building and development of Christ's once inaugurated and now ever-expanding kingdom. When COVID broke out in early 2020, It hit the world hard, landing blow after blow to global economics, politicians, many caught in their shenanigans, to the health sector and to privacy, to our rights as individuals and citizens of a free society, to infrastructure, to energy. Overall, the damage we know has been catastrophic. It is arguable, however, that the heaviest hit from what many have called the shamdemic was delivered to the jaw of the church of Jesus Christ. Through the COVID judgment, he, the, the church was exposed by God for decades of unfaithfulness to the lordship of King Jesus and the steady decline of its fidelity or commitment and faithfulness to the preaching of and obedience to the full counsel of the Word of God. Since that time, we have heard many in the leadership of the SBC, the PCA, the big names in evangelicalism, and church groups all across the world howling like the wolves that they are. Remember how they required for every member assuming that they had church membership, as a matter of obedience to Jesus, the forsaking of the assembling of the church for the purpose of worshiping Jesus and the communion of the saints. You remember how they embraced and openly taught from the pulpit Marxist woke ideologies, how they disgraced God's good design ...of true biblical masculinity, while, like the good white knights that they are... ...promoted feminism and egalitarian church polities. How they claimed to know better than God's own inspired word. That in reality, Jesus is actually a kind and understanding fellow... ...and thereby they adopted a biblical warrant to allow and even perform same-sex mirages on request. And, even within the last few weeks, across the United States, churches were encouraged by the elders and pastors of those churches to close their doors on Christmas Day in order to make time for family and for the sake of witnessing to our lost neighbors. Why has God judged the world, and specifically the church, so much since 2020? Brethren, I say, it's plain as day. Your response could be, I'm glad that I didn't do any of those things. And ultimately, that's between them and God. We can praise Jesus for keeping... You and I from sins like these. However, one of the distinctives of the people of God in both the Old Testament and the New is not just God's individual dealings with His people, but His corporate dealings. Paul alludes to this in his words to the Corinthian church, one that struggled from its own form of radical individualism. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. This is the church who was being judged as an entire congregation. This is New Testament, remember. They were judged as an entire congregation for neglecting unity of the body at the Lord's table. You remember that many were sick and some had even died from this sin. The body is a system. And no healthy part can completely ignore the maladies of other parts. We need to recover in 2023 how to think about the church corporate. Thinking in exclusively individual terms is how the American zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, has taught each of us in the church of Jesus to think. We're trained to treat the church Like Cain treated his younger brother Abel when confronted by God as to the whereabouts of his brother, Cain replied in frustration, Am I my brother's keeper? The answer for those of us in the new covenant who have the law of God written on our hearts is actually yes, you are your brother's keeper. Let us begin. 2023, beloved, by recovering a corporate identity, a concern for, and a care for the whole body of Christ. And let's start right here in this local church. Well, as we look at the text this morning, we'll see many of these corporate themes in Ezra chapter 10. I want you to remember what's been going on since Ezra got news of the exile's sinful intermarriages... With the people of the land. You remember that he immediately in chapter 9 tore his garments and went into both loud and public lamentation. That lamentation lasted all day till the evening sacrifice when he uttered the prayer that we went through last week in chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. And you'll see in this morning's text, beginning in verse 1, that while Ezra Prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down on the ground before the house of God. As he's in that despondency, the congregation of the people is beginning to wake up. A growing number of people have actually heard him or maybe they heard him crying out or someone else told them what was going on. They're coming up to see what's all the hubbub outside of the temple. If you've ever seen a depiction of the Temple Mount, you know that the city of Jerusalem surrounds it, so to speak. And it was a place of congregation or gathering for the people of God. As the exiles are making their daily trips into Jerusalem, into the city, they hear that loud weeping and crying from Ezra. Word gets around and a crowd begins to form. And they they witness their newly and greatly respected leader in the dirt outside the temple throwing dust on his head with a lot less beard hair than he arrived with several days prior. Someone approaches and asks, what's going on here? What's going on with priest Ezra? Don't miss in this Just a brief moment. The efficacy of one man's lamentation for a group of people's sins and the effect that it has. I said earlier, we've been trained as staunch individualists to read passages like this from the me-only perspective. Am I this aware about my sin as Ezra was about others? Do I lament like Ezra over my depravity? And of course, it's right for you to be concerned about logs in your eye and wanting to get those logs out of your eye. Christ commands you as such. But what I'm getting at here is the corporate nature of the church and specifically the power of that corporate nature. If you were to walk into prayer here at Christ the King one Wednesday evening, you and your wife, having just got out of the car, having one of those Intense discussions. Perhaps it was about your lack of interest in your marriage. Your abdication of your role. Your letting discipline standards fall a little bit more each week. Your disinterest in consistently holding family devotions each day. Perhaps your lack of sexual interest because of your untamed eyes throughout the week. You get a church on that Wednesday evening and as you come in, you hear a commotion at the altar up here. One of your brothers has been here early for prayer, but he is crying out to God because of the apathy of the men at Christ the King. Now you tell me, brother, you tell me, sister. How do you respond to a situation like that? Here is a brother broken hearted about the thing that you have at this point been unable to say no to. Convicted much? Wouldn't it even bring relief, even in a small way, bring relief that you know that there are perhaps others in the church who are warring against a sin that you perhaps have been... Slandered into thinking you're the only one who's dealing with it. Matthew Henry said, Our weeping for other people's sins may perhaps set them to weeping for themselves who otherwise would continue senseless and remorseless. David said in Psalm 35, When they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. Brothers and sisters, there is power in the Christian to benefit the local church. We don't just suffer together because it is the loving thing that I must do. Jesus commands me to obey this way. We suffer together because it brings the power of repentance and healing to the congregation in a way that often nothing else can. We'll talk more about this in just a few minutes. But the next thing that we read about in the text is a solitary man approaching the inner circle of the crowd. He's making his way to the front. You see his name there in verse 2 Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, a man that we actually know very little about. The name Shechaniah is mentioned at least eight times throughout the Ezra and Nehemiah narratives. But we do know this one thing about him, and it's a big one. He's not likely one of the offenders in the intermarriage scandal. Now you say, okay, how do we know that? Well, verse 2 says that Shechaniah is the son of Jehiel of the sons of Elam. Now, just briefly, let your eyes drift down to verse 26 of Ezra chapter 10, where you read these words. Of the sons of Elam, Mathaniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. You see that in this list of Elam's sons, Shechaniah's own father, Jehiel, is mentioned as one of the offenders, but Shechaniah's name is not found there. Now I want you to consider the significance of something like this. Shechaniah came forward as a representative of the people to turn in those who had transgressed God's law, pointing still to the hope, if we repent, there's still hope for us. And among those that he came forward to present, he knew that his dad and at least five of his uncles were offenders, were sinners in this case. How much does a man have to care about holiness and the holiness of an entire congregation that in the middle of a growing assembly of what will be, in verse 9 we'll read, all the men of Judah and Benjamin, and he calls out the sin of the entire nation, which he knows includes his dad and some of the rest of his family. It's not impossible to think that since Shek and I's family had gotten back to Jerusalem, Daddy had maybe set his eyes on one of those idol-worshipping women. And that didn't sit well with Junior, and he, he, he may be getting tired of this girl's antics. Now, you might say, that seems a bit uncharitable, don't you think? We, we should think the best of people. I would remind you, brothers, that we have a long list of idol-worshiping women in the Bible who were nothing but trouble. You remember how the foreign wives of Esau made life bitter for Isaac and Rebekah in Genesis 26, or how the mistress Delilah led to Samson's downfall in Judges 16, or how the ruthless Jezebel was chief in the ruin of King Ahab from 1 Kings 21, last night at family worship we went over this text briefly and my children said, Oh, Dad, don't forget about Potiphar's wife, right? And all the trouble that she got Joseph into. Now, God can use even our frustration over the sins of others to lead to greater purity in the congregation. No, we do not sin in anger especially against our brothers and sisters. But we can't have a right, good, and holy anger towards sin. Consider Phineas, who got up in the middle of a tumult in the congregation, grabbed a spear in front of all the first exodus, went into a tent and poached an Israelite man and his foreign wife, who were in the middle of intercourse. And that brought holiness to the congregation and set the people again on a trajectory towards the Lord. Brothers and sisters, you must allow your zeal for this congregation's purity to overcome your fear of how a brother or sister might respond or react when you lovingly but frankly address their sin. There is power in the local church Of Jesus Christ, but each man must perform his duty as part of that corporate body and for that corporate body. We're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, does its part makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This congregational, this group mindset for our entire holiness runs all through the scriptures. Whatever the reason Shechaniah had for coming forward, he does, and just like Ezra, he himself identifies with the sins of the people, confessing in front of everyone, and, as I mentioned, He declares that there's still hope in spite of this grave sin. Even these wayward Israelites know that they serve a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Might I tell you today, lost person, you who are not one with Christ, you're in rebellion against God and hating He and His people, living in sin and unwilling to yield to God's laws, and getting nothing from your toils except a craving for whatever the next fix is. If you turn in full repentance today, you change your mind about what you think about God and His Christ, you reject your love for sin and plead with Him for mercy, that even today, after years of rebellion and idol worship, the kind that no human being should or would be willing to forgive you of, that that God can and will still save you today. But lost person, please notice this. Ezra nor Shekinahim, made any excuses for the people's sin. No, let me explain why we all fell into this sin. There's a reason. Let me tell you. No excuses for the guilt or attempts to make the sin less severe. Well, there's a lot of people that you know marry these days who they want. No reasoning with the unique and special circumstances. Well, it was rape. It was incest. It was the life of the mother. There is a frank and full confession brought about by a sincere sorrow, a faith in God's ability and willingness to forgive, and then a clean break with the sin. Lost one, perhaps you've been saying, I've tried repenting and it's just not working. Does your repentance look like what I just described? If not, it is not repentance. It's not biblically spirit-wrought true repentance. It may look, sound, and feel like repentance. But if it is not a full and frank confession with sincere sorrow and a faith in God's ability and willingness to forgive and then a clean break with sin, it is not repentance. Even if you fall back into that sin, you run right back to Christ through repentance and faith. That's true repentance. You who currently abide under the wrath of God, I call on you to repent now, right there in your chair. There is still time, just like there was in Ezra's day. But there's not much time. Ezra and Shekinah knew that God's wrath would soon be kindled if the people didn't repent. And the same goes for any lost man or woman, boy or girl, Today, And so you can sense an urgency in Shechaniah's voice. He says we have, we've got to covenant together as a body against this sin. And Ezra, you have to lead us in this. All of us who fear God, we've got to do what God commanded according to his law. Now he could be speaking here specifically of a permission allowed in Deuteronomy 24 for the putting away, that's the literal rendering, of a wife. Many translations will use the word divorce. But I don't think that that's likely the legal stipulation that Shek and I is referring to here. These are idol-worshipping women. These are foreigners whom God commanded that Israel may never marry. These Israelite men had broken God's covenant in order to try and establish a covenant. In addition, we need to think about our context and that there is clear discontinuity in the Scriptures here from the Old Covenant to the New. In the Old Covenant, an unbelieving spouse threatened to defile not just the believing spouse, but the entire congregation. In the New Covenant... The unbelieving spouse, Paul says, is made holy by the presence of the believing spouse. That's from 1 Corinthians 7. Just a side note, that doesn't mean that as long as the believer and the unbeliever together, the unbelieving spouse is saved because of the believing spouse, or that they're a member of the new covenant because of their believing spouse. Paul is communicating the reversal of the paradigm we saw in the Old to the new, Under the old covenant, the clean was always at risk for being made defiled by the unclean. But under the new covenant, the unclean is now at risk for being made clean. Jesus himself sets this example. As he touched the unclean person, was not himself defiled, but actually healed their uncleanness. Hallelujah. In the new covenant, through the power of Jesus. What we see here in Ezra 10... For us as New Covenant Christians is a picture of how violent and merciless we have to be towards our sin and the sins of our brothers and sisters here in this church. We can't hold on to it. We don't get to keep it. Not even as a live-in resident. Well, we just have an arrangement. We're not formally together. You can't stay wed to it in any way. You don't get to keep its children no matter how cute and innocent they are. It's not a big sin. Most people do this. You have to cut it off and you have to throw it away. If you find it in your eye, then your eye gets pried out. Or in your hand, then you cut your hand off. You don't need a hand so bad to risk hell over it. Now, brothers and sisters, I would ask you, what are you doing about the sin, not only in your own heart, but also the sin of the brothers and sisters in this congregation. Please hear. I'm not asking for our church to turn into a sin FBI, spying on people for the sake of finding something, because it has to be there somewhere. We're all sinners. New Christ the King reality show, sin hunters. No, no, not at all. I'm asking if and how you intend to deal with the sins of your covenant church family when you see them in the coming year, in 2023. That's what these exiles were up to. Not a witch hunt. You might actually say that they had kind of been in a witch cover-up. The tendency of every American-born church, including ours, is not going to be to just go right to sin and deal with it. More often than not, we're going to be tempted to overlook what the Bible clearly defines as a sin. Adultery, easy one. Laziness, well, people struggle with laziness. You know, he's had a rough year. Give him a break. We'll give him a couple of months. Can laziness damn you to hell? Yes, it can. Can it separate you from the grace of God? Yes, it can. Yes, it can. Paul said, it is, is it not those inside the church whom you were to judge? God judges those outside, but you purge the evil person from among you. 1 Corinthians 6. But what if they won't hear me? What if they disagree with me? What if they think I'm judgmental and they stop talking to me? Shechaniah, I think, could have asked some of the same questions about how his dad and his uncles would respond. Hey, thanks, son. Appreciate that. He knew it would be hard, but he saw the glory on the other side and he went for it. For the sake of this congregation's holiness, I'll put my neck out there. I'll be the one to speak up because it's time for us to be done with this. This is a big reason, beloved, why we do corporate covenant membership at Christ the King. When you join this church, you put your name on the line, giving God and these people your word, that you would perform various biblically commanded one another's, and that you would do it right here in this local body. Who's my neighbor? The New Testament man asks. Well, I, I told everybody who my neighbor is, right here in this local body. These are the one another's that I'm to perform, right here. How did these exiles address the sin in their midst? The same way we're asking you as a church to. They made a corporate covenant to fight the sin together. And when you covenanted with this church, you promised to. A couple of things from our church covenant together, watch over one another and receive admonishment as occasion may require to seek reconciliation quickly by humbly repenting and freely offering forgiveness and participate in and accept the discipline of the church concerning doctrine and conduct. Why? Because the church of Jesus is a body. And it was made to fight sin together. You are, in fact, your brother's keeper. I probably mentioned this illustration before, but one of my favorite stories in all of the Lord of the Rings is the moment when Frodo Baggins is at the end of his wits trying to get the ring up to the top of Mount Doom. He never would have been able to do it without Sam Gamgee. Sam asked Frodo many times when he saw him struggling, can I carry the ring for you? And Frodo always said, no. At one point, you remember, he couldn't go on anymore. He was done and out of energy. And instead of taking the ring from Frodo, Sam carried Frodo up the mountain. He said, Come on, Mr. Frodo, I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you and it as well. So up you get. Come on, Mr. Frodo, dear. Sam will give you a ride. Just tell him where to go, and he'll go. This is such a beautiful picture of a scriptural truth that I love. What kind of love is that? It's the kind that Paul commanded to the Galatians. Brothers, if anyone is caught in sin or transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Two important scriptural truths. Number one, you don't have to fight your sin alone. Get that out of your mind. You do not have to fight your sin alone. And number two, you were never meant to fight it alone. The war on your sin, beloved, is a church war. It's not your individual skirmish. It's something for which we need the body. Don't hear me saying that you don't war privately against your sin. No, fight your sin, gouge out your eye, cut off your right hand. Go to war, be killing it, John Owen says, or it will kill you. But we have got to repent of this idea that God wants me to get my life together. And it's my responsibility and no one else. So I won't bother anybody else with it since they're all so burdened themselves anyway. There are people in this congregation right now praying God for a deliverance from a sin that they're beset with, and there are others here whom God is urging to go and address those sins and help, but so far you've refused to do so. No more. Let's admit up front that fighting sin as a church is uncomfortable. I know this was a tense moment. Shek and I had to come forward and do this if the church starts fighting your sin with you, that means that your sin is known. Here's an area where our sisters are perhaps going to wrestle maybe more than anyone else. Ladies, you were created by God to be glorious. As the song goes, man's not the glory of the woman, but woman is the glory of the man. It's in the very created nature of a woman to want to and exhibit glory. So, when our women are, because of remaining flesh and sin, exuding the aroma of death, the sinful tendency is going to want to be to conceal it. That's not glorious. People aren't supposed to see that. I'm supposed to project beauty, holiness, glory. Sisters, steal this in your mind. The glory that you long for comes not through preservation, but through resurrection. This was the error era of Susan at the end of the Narnia Chronicles. You remember how Susan is said to no longer be a friend. Of Narnia. She's grown up. She's done with all of that childish stuff. Lady Polly gives perspective. Grown up indeed, said the Lady Polly. I wish she would grow up. She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now. She'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can and then stop there for as long As she can. Yet Jesus gives us the right perspective. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Sisters, repent of wanting to be cosmetic with your sin. Stop trying to cover it up. Repent of wanting to brush the dirty stuff under the rug. Repent of pretending that your struggle with holiness is more tidy than the bottom of your toaster oven. Repent of hiding from your husband and your sisters, what you are dealing with, and just get it out there. Repent of always letting your attempts to bring up sin devolve into complaining about your husband and his problems. Repent of the idea that a woman can find true beauty apart from the Calvary road. I don't know what it is you're dealing with right now. Bitterness is sure to be a struggle for many or pride in your looks, or fear of missing out, or a controlling spirit over your household, or your husband, or your children. Sisters, you need the body of Christ to fight your sin. They can't help you if you keep hiding it from them to try and preserve what glory you think you have. Aside from the staggering physical exhaustion of carrying the cross, Jesus was afforded help to carry his cross as an example to us that it's pretty arrogant to think we'll be able to do better than Jesus. You need help. Fight your sin corporately as part of your covenant obligations to the church. I want to come back to verse 4 briefly at the conclusion of the sermon. But as we close, let's look at verses 5 through 8. In verse 5, you see that Ezra makes the people swear that they will do what they've said. He then goes back to the temporary quarters he's been granted, where he spends the rest of the day and night in fasting and prayer over the faithlessness of these exiles. Listen to how the Young Literal Translation phrases the last part of verse 6. Yea, he goeth there, that is Ezra, bread he hath not eaten, and water he hath not drunk. For he is mourning because of the sin of the removal. Ezra is mourning because of the trespass of the removal. What a vivid contrast. Ezra is mourning over the trespass of those who were removed from exile, but the sin is yet to be removed from them. They've been brought out of Babylon, but Babylon still lives on. In them, And you see how Ezra feels the sin of others more than they themselves do. Just a quick point of application. Aren't there times when you, as a parent, feel the weight of your child's sin far more than they do? I ask, church, do you grieve and fast in front of them? It may be a powerful and effective tool that God uses even over time to soften their hearts... And ready them for repentance. No, I'm not talking about practicing your righteousness before men. I'm talking about being in grief over a child's remaining sin. Mommy, Daddy, what's wrong? I'm broken. I'm broken because of this sin that you're still fighting. I'm praying for you. I love you. I want to see you have victory. Because of his authority over the people of Israel, granted to him... Officially by that decree, you remember, from King Artaxerxes. Ezra uses his authority to send out a legally binding proclamation. You see that in verse 7. Everyone is to come to Jerusalem within three days. And if they refuse to show, their property is confiscated. And they would essentially be excommunicated from the Jewish people. Side note, the Judean countryside wasn't a very large landmass at this point. So a three-day journey would have been achievable for just about anyone, rich or poor alike. I want you to notice two things in these last several verses. There's a voluntary congregational covenant made by the people. And that voluntary congregational covenant is followed by a submission... To a real authority of the leadership of that congregation. The returnees entered freely into a covenant with their leaders. Ezra, the elders, you see. And that was to purge the sin from their midst. And then be the people of God that they were called to be. And when the time came for them to submit. They were susceptible to punishment if they didn't obey. In essence what you're seeing is an Old Testament proof text of the need for covenant membership and the actual authority and practice of that authority in the church of Jesus Christ. When you first came to this church, whatever reason God drew you here, the elders asked you to consider official membership and partnership with us. No one forced you to become a member. You freely entered into that covenant yourself because we hope you saw the need to be committed to a body of believers in the same way these exiles did. God not only allows Christians to covenant together this way, but encourages and blesses them for their doing so. For your dedication and commitment to the body of Christ in this way, you get some pretty incredible things. You get the protection of the body, the committed prayers of your local church family, focused discipleship, From those dedicated to your holiness within this body. Assistance in fighting your sin. We've already mentioned that one several times. Help for moments when you fall. Benevolence when you're in need. Pursuit when you are straying. And nobody usually argues about the benefits that you get from being a part of a local church. Where people start to get antsy is when you start talking about the authority of the local church. You can't tell me what to do. I'm in Christ. He's my only Lord. I don't have to submit to men who don't even know my heart. Jesus does. He knows my heart. I'll trust Him. Never mind that Jesus commanded the church be subject to their elders in 1 Peter chapter 5. Never mind that He said to obey your leaders since they... Are keeping watch over your souls in Hebrews 13. Never mind that Jesus gave the keys of binding and loosing on earth, not to you individually, but from his own hands into the hands of the church. Matthew 18. Never mind that we live in a ridiculously individualized society and we hate God's design for authority from top to bottom in every sphere. The government, parents, church elders, we hate authority. We're a people that despise it. Why? Well, it's the same reason that people didn't want authority in the days of the judges. When there's no king in Israel, I can do whatever's right in my own eyes. Can I just remind you, beloved, the churches who don't practice a biblically balanced yet real authority that possesses power, those that respect your rights... They don't get bossy. They let people live their own lives. With all the tongue in cheek I can put into those phrases. Those churches are not real churches. They are not shepherds. They are hirelings. They only watch the souls of the sheep for how it can benefit them. They won't go to war for you or fight the wolf when he comes after you. They'll flee when he comes, leaving you vulnerable. To go back to the introduction, they're the ones who capitulate to draconian COVID policies and allow for sodomite marriages and for fear of black brothers' sensibilities, avoid teaching on all the Bible says, including what it says about slavery. And instead, they proclaim a false gospel of liberation theology and refuse to address the immodesty and gossipy tendencies of American women because, after all, they're just victims of the patriarchy. What does God say? Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep, therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm against those shepherds. And I will require my sheep at their hands and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. You want to talk about a corporate identity of the church? It cuts both ways, y'all. Individuals, within the church can be addressed about their sin. What about the leadership? They're immune. They can just set up a wall. Not forever. We'll stand before God one day and He'll say, where's those sheep? What'd you do with them? And if I can't present them, woe is me. I know that church authority can be abused. Jesus didn't give church elders totalitarian control over His sheep. He did give His church and its elders... An actual authority, just like what you see here in Ezra. To command the sheep according to, Shechaniah says, the law of God. You don't want a church that doesn't exercise authority. In short, you want a church that loves you so much, they'll kick you out. And so we ask you to covenant with us for the sake of your good and everyone else's good. I told you in conclusion that I wanted to come back to verse 4. Last week in chapter 9... We looked at how Ezra acted as a type of Christ in his mediation for the people. We can't leave a text like this without a reminder of that great gift of God that to be covenanted as a body in corporate pursuit of holiness, which comes with the power to discipline when necessary, all of that goodness is mediated through and under the ultimate authority of King Jesus. In verse 4, Shechaniah implores Ezra, arise, it is your task. We're with you. Be strong and do it. Notice this: the spiritual head of the people had to act on behalf of the people. And Jesus, of course, is the head of his church. All of us, shepherds and sheep, need the God man, Christ Jesus, to reign over us in love. And grant us wisdom for this great task of leading and living together as a covenant community. Beloved, we need Christ. We need Christ more than anything. It is He who we're dependent on. You must be strong, Lord Jesus, and do this. You've got to do it. We can fight sin corporately, but even then, even if we do everything your word says and you're not with us, Moses says, if you don't go out with us, I can't go. I've got to have you. He is the great high priest, and it is to He that we are submitting the whole congregation of Christ the King in the upcoming year. Notice this Daniel, Jeremy, and Chris are not in charge of this church. We get this, we understand the reality here. I want you to know that it legitimately makes us tremble when the three of us together consider the greater judgment that we will face because of our leadership over you. We do not take this role lightly. Beloved, may our efforts this coming year to live in harmony and unity be blessed by this glorious Christ, the head and final authority of the church, as we sang at the end of our service, all glory be to Christ our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have set over your church ahead. Jesus Christ the righteous. We thank you for the gift of the under shepherds put under Christ to watch over people's souls. We thank you for the congregation, the body of Jesus Christ. When which every part is working together, the whole body you promised would grow up in love and into the likeness of that Christ who is the head. This we need more than anything this coming year. So help us to see Christ above all, setting him apart as our greatest hope and joy and our aim in all things. So that when we turn and see the sin of our brothers and sisters, as well as our own sin, we lovingly but violently help them deal with it. So that this congregation can be, on the day of your coming, a spotless bride adorned for her husband. It is in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.